Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you I haven't had a chance to meet, uh, I am Jeff, one of the lead pastors here at Faith Church, and we're glad that all of you are here together to worship this morning. And uh, I am especially excited uh, to welcome uh, Nathan and Claire and little Hazel here today, and for you all to get to know them. Uh, they are a fantastic family, and uh, I would be really happy to be able to do life and ministry together with them. Uh, so I hope you all will get a chance uh, today after worship to take advantage of uh, an opportunity to do a meet and greet with the Kingsleys or other opportunities in the next few days. Uh, Tom and Don Waltz uh, are just so gracious. They hosted uh, a dinner Friday night for the search team and the uh, elder executive board to meet with the Kingsleys at their house. Uh, and as Amelia and I were walking in, uh, we saw, I saw Doug Leatherman parking his car and then uh, walking in by himself just about the same time we did. And so uh, I asked Doug, oh, did uh, you and Darla come separately? And he said, no, I had pulled up and dropped Darla off because uh, it was raining a little bit. And, and I thought, yeah, so it was sprinkling a little bit uh, Friday night. Uh, I just parked by the curb and Amelia and I walked in together in the rain. Uh, it's not raining that much. Uh, I thought to myself, and uh, it's not like Amelia is some delicate flower, you know, she's, <laughs> she's tough, and she appreciates efficiency, right? So, so this is maximizing our time here. Uh, I bet she probably doesn't even want me to drop her off. Uh, and, and to make it even worse, I had brought an umbrella and put it in the back seat and then thought, ah, it's not even raining that much, uh, it's not worth the trouble. So we, we'll be fine, we just walked together in the rain to the uh, waltzes. Now, Amelia did not complain that I let her walk in the rain, and we didn't get that wet, uh, in my defense. Um, but I remembered not that long ago, someone had asked Amelia, what is it, you know, sort of reminiscing, uh, what is it that attracted you to, to Jeff when you first met? And uh, he's tall, she said. <laughs> I can wear heels. Uh, and he's... he's uh, so nice. He's a southern gentleman, she said. He'd op he opens doors for me, and, and he would always make sure to walk on the uh, outside of the sidewalk between me and, you know, and the traffic when, when we were going places. And, um, and as I was thinking about that, it, I realized, you know, it's, it's not as though I love Amelia less than I did 30 years ago. In many ways, I see she is even more amazing and more impressive and I love her even more than I did now that we've been together all these years. But I realized that 
Maybe it didn't seem that way to her when we were walking back to the car after dinner in the rain and, and I heard her shoes squishing in the wet grass because I had parked really close to the curb, you know, to, to make it more efficient. <laughs> Have you ever noticed how we can just get so used to something that we can lose sight of how awesome and amazing and special, and glorious, and beautiful, and unique that thing or that person is. It definitely happens with the stuff that we buy. I mean, think about it. How many things have we bought over the course of a lifetime? And we bought them at some point because it was going to solve some problem. It was going to, uh, you know, make us happy. And, And eventually it ends up in the garbage bin, or it ends up buried under a bed somewhere, or given away to goodwill. And that happens in relationships, too, hopefully not, you know, to the curb or under the bed. Um, But over time, in marriage, in families, in friendships, you know, we we can see the flaws. We can see the failures. we We can see the weaknesses, and we get disappointed. And then maybe we start looking for ways to make things more exciting, or we start looking outside for something else or something new or something better or something that feels missing. We may even try and start all over again. Something like that uh, apparently was happening with this fairly young congregation in this town of Colossae. False teachers were coming in and, and spreading questionable doctrines, demoting Christ from a position of supremacy and sufficiency and encouraging kind of questionable, mystical, and ascetic religious practices. And in response, Paul writes this letter to this young church. And he's very intentional to praise, to glorify God for his saving work among these people in Colossae. He thanks God for their faith and their love, which has come in response to the truth of the gospel that they heard preached. And and then he boasts in how this gospel is not only making a difference in their lives, but how it's, it's growing and expanding and making a difference in the whole world. And his point is that understanding and living out of the gospel is absolutely central to life with God. But somehow it becomes less than awe-inspiring to us. That seems to be what's going on in, in that church. We, we lose our awe. We lose our joy. We we lose amazement. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus, maybe can sort of become, yeah, that's the ABCs. That's what we need to know to to come to faith in Christ. It's what we need to be saved. It's what we need to share with other people. But but maybe it's not something we really marvel at. Maybe it's something we're not really drinking deeply from, and it's not really shaping us. And shaping our hearts and our lives. And, and Paul wants to help us see how we don't need to look anywhere else for forgiveness for the past or life in the present or hope for the future. Are you in awe of Jesus in the gospel? That's what Paul is writing about. Does it shape how we see ourselves and how we live and Open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to the book of Colossians, this letter that uh, Paul writes in the New Testament. Uh, If you 
want to use one of those black Bibles in the seat uh, underneath in front of you. It's on page 1168. We are starting a new series today going through this letter that Paul writes to the believers in Colossae over the next number of weeks. And we want to see together how the glory of Christ in the gospel and his supremacy over all things is meant to be for our life and for our joy and for our hope. Now, the background, very briefly, is Colossae was uh, not a really big town uh, in Asia Minor, not that far from Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it, it wasn't particularly significant. It wasn't particularly an important town. Paul had not been there himself, and as we heard in the reading, the gospel had come to them, not through Paul, but through Paul's disciple and fellow worker, Epaphras. Paul starts with this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace is the foundation for our life in God through Christ. It's undeserved favor, undeserved goodness, and, and peace. Paul wants us, even at the beginning, to understand peace is not just about a, a personal peace of mind, but it's also a wider part of being part of God's work and God's will and God's purposes in the world, being a part of his covenant family and how that changes us and changes our relationships. And he's going to explore all that. And he wants to be clear by identifying himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul is not just some random Christian who happens to be writing to them although it's helpful to write encouraging notes to others. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, not a follower of Jesus in his earthly ministry, but he'd been called and appointed by the risen Jesus to this role, this function. An apostle is not just about an authority that's been given, but it's Paul's role in God's worldwide mission, that, that he has a special part of God's divine plan promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament that is, that is now brought to climax in the sinless life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ that is now being put into effect by God sending that message out to the entire world in which Paul has a key role and now these people do too and now we do too. What is it that makes this gospel so glorious, so significant? What is it that made the apostle give thanks to God for its work? That's what we want to explore today. The first thing is this. The gospel is glorious because we receive it by faith. The gospel should be glorious and awe-inspiring to us. Because as Paul writes, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. Paul sees the church with all its imperfections from God's perspective. He calls these believers saints and holy ones, that is, people who by faith are now included in what God is doing through Jesus Christ and set apart to live with him and for him. The, the faithful mention that he has there in verse 2 could also, it could mean certainly those who believe in Christ, but it can also mean those who are firm, those who are steadfast, those who are holding on to Christ. And it is 
the brothers who are in Christ Jesus at Colossae. See, Paul is underscoring that Jesus, the promised Messiah of God, is the one in whom we find our identity. And that is lived out now as the people of God in a particular place for every one of us. We are the saints of God in Indianapolis, in Carmel, in Westfield, in Zionsville, in, in Lawrence, and all over, wherever God has placed us. It is by God's will that Paul has been called and sent. It's by God's will that they have been brought to faith in Christ, and it's by God's will that they are living it out in this place. We are at the same time members of God's eternal kingdom and members of a particular community where we are called to witness and service. And Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He goes on in verse 6 to mention how this gospel is bearing fruit and growing as it is doing among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is glorious. Because it is the unearned gift of God's love. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, a gift to all who will receive it. It cannot be earned. It cannot be paid for. It cannot be deserved. It's only received through faith in Christ as a gift of God's unmerited favor and blessing. And our hearts long for grace. But we also resist it, don't we? In love, God created men and women in his image as an act of grace. And from the beginning, our relationship with God was simply accepting his love and living in it. There was nothing for Adam and Eve to do to earn God's love, nothing to achieve to have identity or security or peace and significance. And Adam and Eve were significant and secure simply because God had made them and he loved them. And then they chose to believe the lie, that they would be better off apart from God. They listened to the message that said, how pathetic, how sad it is that you would be dependent on God. You will only be fully alive when you declare your independence from Him and stand up on your own two feet and prove what you are worth. And that lie has set in motion all the disastrous consequences that men and women have had to deal with ever since. See, we used to know what we were worth. I matter because I'm made in the image of God. I matter because God loves me. My work is significant because I'm partnering with God and ruling over his creation. I have peace in myself and with others because I am at peace with God. And now all of it's gone. I have to prove my worth. I define my identity based on what I accomplish, what I earn, what others think of me, how others define me. Now my work is significant because of the size of the paycheck or the title that comes with it. Relationships are about competition and proving my worth and showing that I'm better than other people because of my intelligence or my bank account or my education or, or my title. And, and I don't have peace because I can never know if it's enough. I always have to have more. And now our hearts are twisted. And we need something to do, something to boast about. We want a record of accomplishment, even 
even with God, even of his children. Deep down, we want to stop competing. We want to stop measuring ourselves. We want to stop earning and boasting, but we can't. And that is what makes the gospel so attractive and so offensive at the same time. See, every other religion feeds our egos and tells us what we can do, how we can measure up, how we can be good enough, how we can be righteous, how we can have an identity to give us something to boast about. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is so beautiful and glorious because it tells us that we are right with God and we have peace purely as a gift of his grace that we receive by faith. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done. All his righteousness is credited to us when we trust in him. And that is glorious good news. Because it's received by faith. It's unearned. It's undeserved. But it's not just faith in general. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It means believing that Jesus is the sinless son of God who came to live the sinless life that we could not, to die in our place, to reconcile us to God, and who rose in victory over sin and death. But faith also means trust and commitment. The truth of the gospel is something to be heard and responded to, not just mentally, but with our hearts and with our lives, Paul says. And we'll see much more of that as we go through this letter. But but even here, Paul is, is alluding to the fact that faith includes trust. When we come to Christ, we are putting our trust in him and stopping trusting in ourselves, trusting in other solutions, trusting in our goodness, believing the stories that we want to write for ourselves about how, you know, I was really right about all that and life would work out great if everyone would just listen to me. We don't trust Christ plus baptism or prayer or joining the church or the works that I do for him. I trust Christ only because only he gives us life. And that includes repentance because repentance means turning away from. It means a change of direction that results in a change of action. Because if we put our faith in Christ, we obviously have to turn away from any other savior, any other solution, including ourselves. Christ becomes the leader, the Lord of my life because I am trusting him. I'm putting my faith in him. And we are so messed up and broken by our sinful rebellion of God that apart from his grace, we can't understand that message. We can't receive it. We can't live it out. We can't live in it. We don't even genuinely seek God. The Bible says our, our hearts are hostile to God and to his truth. And even our faith is a result of God's graciously softening our heart and drawing us to Jesus. The gospel leaves us with no room for confidence, even in ourselves or even in our faith. It's only confidence in Jesus, who is the object of our faith. It calls for us to give all glory and honor to God, because the gospel, the good news of what God has done, simply something we receive. Does our faith lead us to fully trust in Christ, to turn away from all the brokenness and twistedness inside of us, and to commit ourselves to Jesus as Lord over everything, 
It's not just a test to our own faith, but it's also about leading others to Christ because Paul is praising God for the Ephesians' faith because it has come to them through Epaphras and it ultimately is to the glory of God. How amazing, amazing it is. Can we still be amazed, no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus, that God would actually save us and that there is still nothing in us to commend us to God or to make him love us more than he did when he first saved us. The gospel is glorious. It is good news because it is nothing that we can earn or deserve. And it's a gift that we receive. And the gospel is glorious then because it results in love. Look at what Paul goes on to say. We've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints. In verse 4. Paul rejoices. Paul is excited about the glory of God producing love in the hearts and the lives of these Colossians. They began to love all the saints. And that starts to become a test, a measure of how well we've really come to understand the gospel, isn't it? The Apostle John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The sure sign of the gospel at work is a loving community that is created absolutely out of nothing. Gospel love is different from worldly love because we can create a community, an association, a society, a group based on shared interests and shared background of people who look like us and think like us. Paul is wanting us to understand the glory of the gospel that creates love in our hearts for people for whom we would have no natural affinity. That's the glory of the gospel. It extends to all of God's people. And then we know that we have passed from death to life when we love people in that way. When we are truly born again, the Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts and it moves and empowers us to love God, to love people, especially those in the community of God's family. Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. It's not just a an encouragement and a, and a measurement for us. But are we loving one another in a way that people who don't even know Jesus would see there's something different? Look at how they love one another. Look at how they care for one another. Look at how they prefer one another over themselves. Paul talked about this love for all the saints. And, and today in the church calendar, throughout history, we've celebrated Pentecost. When God fulfilled his promise to pour out the Holy Spirit on Jesus' followers. And on that first day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, God pours out his Holy Spirit on people from different races and nationalities and languages and people groups and different parts of the world. They're all joined together as one new community in Christ. And 
Luke goes on to tell us they met in one another's homes. They broke, God, broke bread with glad and sincere hearts, giving thanks to God. The rich began to sell what they had in order to give to the poor. Love starts to work itself out practically. What does that look like? Well, it, it means we meet together with one another. For one thing, Paul instructs the believers that they are to read his letters out loud as they gather together in worship. It's a reminder not just that we need to hear this word, but that we need to hear it together. That yes, we follow Jesus individually, but we never follow Christ alone. And the church becomes a community where we hear and follow God's word together as a people. That we are all together being shaped by God's word, and we are shaping each other as we are speaking God's word into each other's lives. For Christians, truth is a corporate possession. That's why it's so important for us to gather together. The church is the context where we should expect to have wrong ideas and misunderstandings and sinful actions lovingly corrected and right ones graciously encouraged and that we are all part of that process for each other. We need connection to a congregation, and it also suggests we need to be willing to listen to Christians from other backgrounds, from other perspectives, and even from other periods of history, because we are part of the universal church of Christ that extends back and forward throughout time. That's part of the reason why, obviously, we attend church on Sunday, why we connect in community groups, why we we gather for fellowship throughout the week because when you love someone, you want to be with them. You want to connect with them. You, you want to invest in the relationship. It compels us to get together for the sake of loving each other and encouraging each other in Christ. And it also leads us to care for one another. It means we listen to each other, support each other in trials. We go out of our way to encourage one another. It leads us to change our attitudes and our actions towards people. It changes our homes. It changes our families. It changes our attitude towards work. And, and we'll see more about that in, in chapter 3. I mean, we, we just heard announcements about bottles for babies for life centers and the need for helpers in vacation Bible school coming up and, and workers in children's ministry over the summer. Those are not just ministry slots that need to be filled. Those are opportunities for us to love others because of the love that God has shed in our hearts. Christ said, love one another as I have loved you. And Christ's love is defined by sacrifice and seeking the good of others, by giving up time and money and possessions. What has God called you to sacrifice, to give up, to invest? Because of the love, the glorious love that he has poured into your hearts and now flows over. And, and that means it's a care for all the saints. That means praying with and partnering with other churches and other groups who also love Jesus. It means supporting missionaries and ministries around the world, that, that our love is global because that's the extent of God's mission and God's plan. And it even means loving and seeking the good of non-Christians. Paul reminds them in verses 7 and 8, you learned, you heard this gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. 
That means that Epaphras at some point heard the gospel and went to non-believers in his hometown, people who were alienated from God, to love them and to share the message of how they could be reconciled through faith in Christ and find life and hope. God has committed this gospel into the hands of sinful but redeemed people. And so we are God's ambassadors sent out to call people to be reconciled to God and to know his love as though Christ were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. Do we have a love that leads us like Epaphras to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the people around us? That we participate in spreading that word through prayers, through giving, through our words, through our lives. The gospel is glorious because it results in a genuine love for others whom we would naturally not love. And the gospel is glorious because it produces hope. Real hope. Look again in verses 4 and 5. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's been said that human beings are the only creatures that think about the future. That we think about the future in a way that no other created being can or does. And I think that also helps us understand that part of the reason that at times and in various degrees, we struggle with depression or discouragement because we lose hope. In this world, the things that we hope in will always let us down to one degree or another. And then we lose hope, we lose motivation to do anything, and, and sometimes maybe even the motivation to live. We need hope. We cannot live without hope. We need hope to encourage us, to motivate us, to help us persevere. A person who wants to be a doctor studies hard in her, in her classes for the hope of getting the degree and, and serving others. A person works hard in the gym under the hope that they'll gain a more fit body or, or become healthier. We, we live and we act because we are motivated by hope. And that is what makes the gospel so glorious because it is the only real hope that we have in this life and in the life to come. Hope is essentially faith in something future. Paul says this hope springs from, it's because of a hope stored up in heaven, and, and that points us towards hope of eternal life, not just simply living forever, but knowing God and living with him. That is our hope. Christ said in, in John, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Our hope is that even now we could know God and know life with him. And, and ultimately one day, yes, experience life with him and enjoy his presence forever. And that means we have hope in the face of our death and in the face of the death of people we love. We mourn in hope. Because our loved ones who die in Christ are in his presence. And we will see them again. We hope because just as Christ rose, if we are in him, we too will rise. 
in new life and in a new resurrection bodies, a new kind of life. One day, one day, I will no longer struggle with greed or lust or pride or envy. One day, I will not struggle with confusion or depression. I will not struggle with physical pain any longer. This old body will be discarded and we will receive new glorious bodies and be like Jesus. Hope includes an inheritance with Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus. That means everything that belongs to Christ is ours. All God's promises to us are yes and amen in the gospel. That means heavens and one day a renewed, restored earth. Do you rejoice in the glorious hope of that gospel? It's not just even hope for eternity, but it means hope for our lives now that God is doing something in us and through us and with us. Look back in verse 5. This gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day that you heard it. The gospel is the glorious good news that we are included in God's plans to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus Christ. And it is happening already, Paul says. The gospel bears fruit and increases. That means we're living in the hope now that God is at work slowly sometimes, painfully slowly, but actually making us look more like Jesus. The gospel is bearing fruit and even increasing. But listen, there's also here a glorious echo of Genesis 1, where God commands animals and men and women made in his image to be fruitful and to increase. And that promise has been unfulfilled since We have become corrupted and sinful, but now the hope is that God would fulfill his promises to Adam and Eve by creating a people who would be set apart for himself, and now we are included in that promise and that hope because of what he is doing through Jesus Christ. And through us, that promise extends to the whole world. Is that not amazing? Is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing hope in your life? Is it changing you? Is it giving you more peace, more calm, more confidence, more purpose, more joy, more perseverance? Imagine that you were a billionaire. You're Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or Jeff Bezos. And you happen to have three $10 bills in your pocket. You get in a cab to go across town, and the fare is $8, and you pull out a bill and pay for it. Later in the day, you look in your pocket, and there's only one $10 bill in there. And you realize, either I overpaid the cabbie, or I've lost that bill somewhere. So what do you do? Are you going to get upset? Are you going to call the cab company and say, find that guy, I lost my $10? No, you're going to shrug it off, you're a billionaire. What do you care about $10? It's meaningless to you. You're too rich to be concerned about that kind of a loss. This week, somebody criticized you. Something you bought or something you invested in or something you hoped in 
turned out to be less valuable than you thought. Something you desired to happen didn't go the way that you wanted. You got some bad news. Those are real losses, and God does not diminish them. But what do we do with that if we're a Christian? Does that setback disrupt our contentment? Does it make us shake our fist at God? Do we lie awake at night, tossing and turning in anxiety over that loss, that disappointment? Sometimes we do. And if so, maybe it's because we don't know the hope that God has called us to and how rich we are in Christ. We're not living out of the hope that is stored up for us that results in faith and love and produces peace and joy and contentment. See, if I'm upset about my status with other people, if I'm worried what other people are thinking of me, if I'm never able to admit I'm wrong, if, if I'm going through life leaving a trail of hurt people and emotional wreckage, yeah, we could say that's a lack of self-control, it's immaturity, it's, maybe it's low self-esteem, and, and it's probably all those things. But more fundamentally, is it that we've lost touch with our identity and the source of our hope? That in Christ we are billionaires and we're wringing our hands over $10. The gospel is glorious because it grounds and it redirects our hope. It makes us firm and secure because God's promises are trustworthy. Our hope is not anchored in this world or anything that we can have or own or be or accomplish in it. Our worst case scenario in the long term is resurrection and everlasting life. And an eternity of wholeness and strength and joy and fullness and happiness with Jesus and all who love him. Anchor your hope in the glorious promises of God in the gospel. We need to hear that gospel again and again and live out of it so that we would live in hope. So what is our response to all this? What do we do with this? All of this, Paul is pointing out, is about Jesus and what he has done. The gospel is about the glory of God revealed in sending his son to rescue and redeem us and to begin to restore the broken creation. And now by faith, we begin to experience that reality ourselves. We become a part of God's family. We grow to look more like Jesus. And we live with the hope of renewal and perfection with Christ. Does that not excite us? Does that not make us rejoice with awe and gratitude? Researchers from the University of Georgia interviewed 468 married couples on relationship satisfaction, talking about everything from communication habits to finances, and they found that there was one consistent predictor of happy, stable marriages. It was whether or not gratitude was expressed in the relationship. Feeling appreciated and believing that your spouse values you directly influences how you feel about your marriage, how committed you are to it, and your belief that it will last, says the study co-author David Futris. What a great name, right? What distinguishes marriages that last is not how often they argue, not what they argue about, but how they argue and how they treat each other on a daily basis. 
The study shows that the key to a happy and lasting marriage might be as simple as regularly expressing gratitude. Saying thank you is a practical way that couples help strengthen their marriage. And I hope we can all see that is not just about marriage. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank God. That's gratitude. When we pray for you, that's worship. Do you stand in awe of this gospel? In awe of the God who would do such amazing, glorious things in us and for us and through us. Do you praise God and give thanks to him for it? Because whatever we love is what we will invest ourselves in and be excited about and run towards. One of the reasons, by the way, I think that children and new believers keep us young is because everything is new to them. They're discovering everything for the first time, right? I mean, that's, everything is cool and interesting and amazing. And that, by the way, is one of the benefits of serving with children or in student ministries because they help us see things with new eyes. You sit down with someone who's new to faith in Christ and this is brand new to them and they're excited about it and they can't wait to learn more about it and tell other people about it. Paul is telling us life Maturity for God's people is not in insider knowledge. It's not in special spirituality. It's not in law keeping. It's not from withdrawing from the world. Life in Christ and maturity comes from drawing out and applying the meaning of the death and the resurrection and the glorious reign of Jesus Christ for us who believe in him and for those who would believe in him. Paul praises God for his work in the lives of these people, in his disciple Epaphras, and throughout the world. And when we see the glory of Christ that way, it grows us in faith. It produces hope. It's lived out in love towards others. May God make this gospel continue to be glorious to us so that we would grow in worship and gratitude to God through Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for this gospel. And even though for some of us it may be so old that we can't remember not believing it. Father, today and especially as we go through this letter to your people in Colossae, would you use this word? to expand our awe of you, our praise and thanksgiving to you, that the gospel would all the more be beautiful and glorious and joyful and hope-filled in a way that would deepen our faith and that love would flow out from us because of who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus. Oh, Father, may that be true. Pray in Christ's name with gratitude and joy and worship and awe. Amen.